Am I on? All right. Last week, George expertly walked us through the introduction of Proverbs. If you remember, Solomon came to ask the Lord for wisdom, and he was given wisdom in abundance from the Lord. He ended up writing 3,000 Proverbs, 1,005 Psalms, only to be outdone by Eric Heron, I think, in the number of songs he wrote. <laughs> and this man of wisdom comes today to give us Ecclesiastes. I want you to remember some of the things that George taught last week, that wisdom in a biblical sense, is not to be detached from God's story. It's part of the story. They're not pithy statements that you could just break open like in a fortune cookie, pull them out and say, yeah, I'm going to live this way. They're also not guarantees of anything. And the theme of Ecclesiastes is absent guarantees and absent our ability to control our lives. We find faith and freedom in Ecclesiastes. That sounds good until you look at the opening verses of Ecclesiastes. If you open up in chapter 1, we find these words right away. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Well, that sounds like a downer right from the start. Is that the true wisdom that we're meant to take from this, meaninglessness? Is Solomon in a state of despair or depression? Has he walked away from the Lord? Has he lost his wisdom? Has he lost his wits? But the text in Ecclesiastes tells us that no, the Lord was with him. He was still in a place of wisdom. So why does he say that everything is meaningless? That's what we're coming into the book of Ecclesiastes today to discover what is the meaning in this word meaningless. What's the meaning in Ecclesiastes? Pray with me, if you will. Lord God, you are the giver of life and the giver of wisdom. Holy Spirit, you gave this wisdom to Solomon. You preserved it through the ages, and you gave it to us as your word. This morning, we ask that you illuminate this text before us so that we might understand its meaning and also, Lord, that it might change us in a powerful way. We pray this in your name. Amen. I was standing in my office on the 23rd floor at my firm. I had just become the youngest person in my firm to become a junior partner, and I was staring out the window, floor to ceiling, just glass overlooking downtown LA. Behind me on the couch was my associate, Cliff. We were working on a new case we had just gotten. And as I was staring out the window, I asked, do you think that anything we do, that we do here really matters to anybody? You think if you and I tomorrow got hit by a bus that anybody would miss us, would the wheels of justice come off? Would anything stop or change? Now, some of you might think, wow, was he going to jump out the window? What was he doing? Should Cliff have jumped up and barricaded the, the windows? Well, they don't open on the 23rd floor just for that reason, probably. They know we're trapped. No, you see, Cliff was the only other Christian in a firm of 150 attorneys, and we often wrestled together about what meaning there was in life. What was the role that we were supposed to take? What were two lawyers supposed to do in the kingdom working in a large firm? What was it that God had for us? And it's funny that after years of advancement, it's when you start asking these questions. It's funny that that's the irony in it, the same way that Solomon, after years of becoming famed for his wisdom, famed for his treasure, famed for his judgment, for his being the powerful king, 
now starts to investigate life. And we go back to these words again, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Was he depressed? Was I that day? Or were we asking deeper questions about what is that meaning? You see, part of the problem for us is that when we come to the text, the word that is described as meaningless actually comes, it's a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is hebel. It's a word that we find difficult to translate. So if you're reading an NIV Bible, you'll see the word meaningless. If you're looking at the King James or the NASB or the New King James, it might be translated as vanity. And we've often heard of that, vanity of vanities. But see, the Hebrew word has a different meaning, a different flavor sometimes. In Proverbs 21.6, we see this use of it. The acquisition of treasures by a lying tongue is hebel, a fleeting vapor, the pursuit of death. So maybe it's not that life is meaningless or empty or void or vain. Maybe it's just that it's vaporous, that we can't control it, that it's incomprehensible, that it's enigmatic, it's mysterious, it's beyond our ability to put into a box the way that so many of us want to, to understand it and be able to control it. So with your permission this morning, just to help us understand the meaning a little better, I'd like to substitute that word, vaporous, for hebel, as we read through the text. So if we change it, it'll be changed to vaporous, vaporous. Life is vaporous. It's beyond our control. You know, the New Testament has the same kind of concept. In the book of James, we read, as James is counseling those who think that they can presume they have unlimited life, who think that tomorrow they can continue their pursuits of money. James says in chapter 4, listen those of you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this town or that city, spend a year there and carry on business. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? And he answers it. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, a vapor. Instead, you ought to say, James says, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. It's putting the right place for God in control and in our own lives, understanding that our lives are a vapor, uncontrollable, here today and gone quickly. So the punchline of Ecclesiastes is this. I'm going to put it up front so we don't miss it as we walk through the investigations of Solomon. Ecclesiastes gives us faith and freedom. It's hopeful. It's not a downer. It's not the meaninglessness that we might encounter when we're reading through the text in English. It's faith and it's freedom. Why faith? Because once we understand that we're not in control of this life, that there are no guarantees, that this life doesn't make any sense apart from God, then we can put our faith where it belongs, in the Lord, and trust him. Last week, George reminded us that even in the Proverbs, there's no guarantee. Just because we live wisely according to the Proverbs does not guarantee us a certain result. It's not a magic incantation. It's skillful living. That's the type of wisdom it is. But God is the only guarantee. He's the one in control. That should give us freedom. Because if life is really unfathomable, if we really cannot grasp everything and we cannot hold on to guarantees that are created by our own hands, then it gives us freedom to enjoy this life and let God be God. 
And you'll see this reflected in Solomon's prescriptions over and over throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So Solomon in this high place, in this place of achievement and accomplishment, in this place of vision that where he could look back and see where he'd been and look forward maybe at life from a clear vantage point, begins to investigate wisdom and work and pleasure and all the things that we strive for in this life and to see if any of them bring the type of control that we want. And I'd like to walk you through some of those investigations right now. The first one he investigates is work. Many of us hope that through work we can control the uncertainties in our life. And Solomon commends work, but in the end he points this out. What does man gain from all his labors at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. What has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This, too, is vaporous and a great misfortune. Solomon commends work, but he points out that there's nothing to be gained. Does that mean that there is no reason to work? No, but it's not meant to control or add anything to this world that God has created. Generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. It's all firmly in God's control. And notice the irony of working a whole lifetime to give it to someone who has not worked for it. It's something that we encounter. So Solomon finds that work can be hebel. What about wisdom? Solomon had wisdom in abundance. Surely we could put some hope in wisdom because we can live right. We can discover and discern God's direction for us. So in wisdom, he said, I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, with more knowledge the more grief. Aha, you see, he admitted it. he was depressed, see? Grief. What does he mean there? I think Solomon, as he increased in knowledge and wisdom, like most of us would expect, started to realize more and more how uncontrollable life is how beyond our ability to fathom it. Chasing after wind, another of Solomon's favorite expressions. More accurately translated, it's a shepherding of the wind, a herding of the wind, something that we can't do. As hard as we try, we cannot shepherd the wind any more than we can contain or control this vaporous life. So wisdom was found to be hebel. Solomon turns to an investigation of pleasure. And Solomon had it all. In the beginning of chapter 2, he begins to explain how he had built these great projects and undertaken to collect so many things. Vineyards, houses, reservoirs, flourishing trees, flocks, servants, gold, silver, men, women, harems, singers. He had everything. I wonder in our lives, maybe these are foreign pleasures to us, what we replace them with. Maybe it's the pleasures we seek in recreational items or the material things that we take on. Maybe we put our hope and control into different things like our investments, 
the things that we hope will make us happy. Shoes. But the main point is Solomon's investigation led him to the same place. About pleasure, he said, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Let's stop there for a moment, because how often do we feel that as we work, we deserve these things, these pleasures? And notice again, he took delight in his work. There's nothing wrong with work. He took delight in it. But he sought these pleasures as a reward for his labors, and yet he found that pleasure was hevel. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was vapor. A chasing after wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So surely, Solomon thought, it must be the wisdom to live life in a better way. So he investigated discernment. Some of us are tempted to feel if we just make wise choices, life will turn out right. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Isn't that why we have the Proverbs and the wisdom literature? And as George again reminded us, no guarantees. Last week he made the analogy that in between Psalms, here's Proverbs, there's these two bookends. Ecclesiastes is one of them. And the other one is Job, a book of no guarantees. A book where people counseled to seek certain things, not knowing what was going on in the background. So on discernment, Solomon says, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Even sitting in wisdom and seeking wisdom to discern the right way to go in our lives does not lead to guarantees Solomon found. Justice. Solomon next turns to look at the subject of justice. Surely we can find justice somewhere on this earth. Put our hope in those kinds of institutions. And here again, Solomon says, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they had no comforter. There is something else vaporous that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve, and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. You know, I'm often asked if it's difficult for me to defend someone who's done something wrong. Yeah, it can be tough. But you know what's more difficult? It's more difficult to defend somebody who's done nothing wrong. Because the way that our human systems of justice are created, it's rare that justice really results. In the law, we joke sometimes among ourselves that our legal system and justice only occasionally intersect. And anybody who's known someone that's been caught up in the legal system and was watched lives be ruined and crushed, we see every day that human systems of justice can be perverted and twisted and manipulated. When you go into our court systems, you realize that every single day people lie to do or say anything get ahead in the legal system. And your heart breaks the way that Solomon's heart broke when he says, in the place 
Where there should be justice, wickedness was there. But here's where we see the heart of Solomon the most, having faith. It takes faith to see an unjust world and believe in a just God. And Solomon does that immediately as he proceeds forward. He says, I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. Solomon's hope, his faith, is placed in the right place, not in our own human systems of justice. And remember, Solomon himself was this wise, just person. We have the story of him where we get that term splitting the baby, where his wisdom is displayed in a legal proceeding, and yet he does not put his faith even in his own abilities or our human-created systems. He puts his faith in God. That takes faith to believe in a just God and believe in justice that's yet to come over and above what we want today, now, in this world. The last place that he turns that I'm going to highlight this morning is wealth. Again, Solomon in a unique position able to possess so much wealth, to have so much in his hands, looks at wealth. I know that we've been socialized well enough in the church that if I asked you to raise your hand and say, how many of us put our hope in wealth? Pretty much, no, I'm not going to get any hand raising there. We know better than that. We know that our hope needs to be in God. We say that to one another, just give it up, surrender it to the Lord. And then we come to passages where Jesus is telling us not to be anxious, to consider the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and not to worry about anything. And we think, sure, birds, lilies, they don't have a mortgage to worry about, so it's easy for them. You should see the place where I'm at. As you read the pages of Ecclesiastes, you'll see over and over that Solomon does commend work and does commend our efforts. But for those of us who find that our hope, our guarantee in this life, our protection, our insurance is to be found in possession and wealth, he investigates that too. Remember, he had it in abundance. About wealth, he says, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth will, is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is vaporous. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. That's the irony of all of it. Again, in a place of revelation, not despondency, he sees all of these things. So after all of these investigations, what is Solomon's prescription for our life? What does he commend us to do? You've seen this theme of faith that he has. How do we live out this freedom? What are we supposed to do? Five or six times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he takes a break and gives us a prescription, each time just a little different, but they're very similar in one structure, to enjoy what God has given us and to find joy in that and let God be God. Here are some of them I've collected. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. 
This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Says it again. I commend the enjoyment of life, because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. The good news If you're thinking right now about where you're going to go to brunch or where you're going to eat afterwards, the Bible commands that. Don't feel bad about it. It's okay. (laughs) You're not alone. In fact, he goes on to say, go, not now, go. (laughs) Eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white. Always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this vaporous life that God has given you under the sun, all your vaporous days. You know, when I come to the end of that, I think if we had just kept it in the, in the NIV translation that I had been reading, just think about that. Closing words being all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. And I think that's why so many of us have trouble when we come to Ecclesiastes, because we're thinking, this just seems so out of character. And yet, not really. If we look at that word, we understand that it's beyond our control. We shouldn't stress out about that. You know, a lot of us, we know, again, how to say to each other that God is in control, but we struggle together, silently sometimes, with really giving God the control. As I came across these words in the text, there's some good news in them. And the good news is whether you give it up to God or not, it doesn't matter because he's in control either way. You know, you can struggle to hang on to control, but the point in Ecclesiastes is you can't do it. Sooner or later, you'll come to the same place that Solomon came, understanding it's all hevel, vaporous, not in our hands. So faith and freedom. Those are the things that Ecclesiastes leave us with. But there's one more thing that we have advantage of that Solomon did not have. We have the new covenant in front of us. So if I were to be a good sermon giver, I'd throw in a third F. I should probably, because you can't have two. It's incomplete. People feel uncomfortable. So I was trying to think like faith, Freedom, friends, faith, freedom, family, faith. And then I came up with one. Faith, freedom, forever. Because the new covenant gives us one additional piece. And that is, we have life forever with the Lord awaiting us. This life is vaporous, but that's not bad news. The good news is that as soon as this vaporous life eludes us, we can now move on to freedom forever with our Lord, the way it was intended to be for us. You know, those conversations that I had with Cliff, my associate, so many years ago, they led to a lot of changes in our lives. From that high place, from that place of looking back at accomplishment and achievement, also from that place literally high above the city, we would have these conversations about what it meant. Eventually, it led us both to leave the places that we worked. It wasn't that there was anything wrong with continuing to move forward on a path of achievement and accomplishment, but if we had put our faith, our hope, 
in this type of life, it would mean that at the end of our lives we'd be having the same conversation and realizing that even accomplishment and achievement and advancement was a different kind of hebel. It's just one other way that life is vaporous. It wouldn't guarantee us success. Not in God's economy. Solomon also reminds us that in the house of mourning are where the wise are to be found, and in the house of pleasure are where the foolish are to be found. What does that mean? It means that in those moments of grief and mourning, in those moments where we encounter the death of somebody we know, in that house of mourning, we suddenly discover how vaporous life is, what life is really about. It's as if for 10 minutes we have this perspective on life, clarity, if we could only just bottle that and put it somewhere where we could keep it, keep that perspective to understand what really matters in this life, Ecclesiastes attempts to encapsulate that for us, that wisdom. And so those conversations led us away from our places of employment at the time. Cliff to pursue things that the Lord had on his heart and to pursue a family, and myself the same way, to get closer to the priorities of the Lord and to spend more time building a family and a life to enjoy here with what God has given. I pray that for all of us, that we would find that kind of faith, that kind of freedom, and find meaning in the book of Ecclesiastes. Not meaninglessness, not void, not vanity, but deep and true meaning that connects us to the life and the God that's yet to come that we're waiting for. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at your wisdom that we spend so many years encountering and studying, and yet your word continues to surprise us. Thank you, Lord, that you have not led us to leave meaningless lives, but have filled them with meaning. If we could adjust, adjust our lives and focus on you and the things that you've placed before us. Thank you for this wisdom, Lord. Use it to create true skill for living in our lives. Use it to change us from within. Use it so that we might recognize the fleeting nature of our lives and the glory that you have to bestow us the next. I pray this in your name. Amen.